Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 514 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the worlds of NXT and AEW, as is normally the case for these Thursday shows, we have an absolute ton to get to, so we are not going to waste any time off the top bringing it into your ear holes. Allow the Silver King to remind you right away that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defied. So please remember to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, leave a five-star rating on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read that review live right here on the show. Do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. You can also DM us and tweet us questions and comments that we will read on the show again all on Twitter, at Getting Overcast. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get approximately four bonus audio posts a week, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, five-minute audio recaps of Raw, NXT, Dynamite and SmackDown, along with news posts and breaking news posts, generally on Friday, but sometimes things happen during the week that we like to talk about there as well. Again, sign up, $5 a month, 50 for the year, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. As I said, this is the NXT and AEW show. NXT technically is building to Deadline, which is their premium live event in December, AEW is building for full gear, which I gotta just be honest with you, I did not even realize it was November 18th, like less than three weeks away. It is legitimately wild how many pay-per-views they are shoving into the end of this year. It brings up a lot of questions. I will save those for another episode, but yeah, uh, full gear coming up and they set a bunch of matches Wednesday on Dynamite, coming off what I would describe as one of the more interesting weeks in AEW television because there were a lot of lows, but also some real notable highs. We're gonna get to that all later in the show. We are gonna kick off today with NXT for two reasons. One, it was night two of Halloween Havoc, the television special. And the second reason is it's a two-hour show. In AEW, we're gonna have five hours of content to talk about. But not only that, I did post a poll on Twitter uh, earlier Thursday before I taped this show, and I simply asked all of you who follow us there, how many fire emojis do you want in one episode? And that is what we use uh, to represent rants. And usually, you know, it's zero, but occasionally here, there'll be one, sometimes maybe two in the same episode. I had the possibility to give you three, and 87% of you said you wanted all three on one show. So that's what's going to happen here uh, later on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. A little bit of a tease uh, when we get into the second section on today's episode. But for now, as I said, we are going to start with NXT. A reminder, we have timestamps in the episode description. So if you only wish to listen to NXT or you only want to listen to AEW, you can jump around. As always, I hope you listen to the entire show. So this is going to be the recap and analysis of NXT Halloween Havoc Night 2. 
Uh, Shotzi and Scarlett arrived in the Ectomobile dressed up as sexy Ghostbusters. Fun fact is this is actually an exhibit at the Auto Museum in Orlando, which is how they were able to get it for NXT. I've been to that museum, I've seen it before, so it was pretty cool for it to be on TV. The ladies later played with an Ouija board and Shotzi was in some clown costume I didn't recognize. Scarlett, back in that black lingerie with her throat cut from last week. You know how I feel about that. It look good, but she's got me saying, hey now! Unholy Union then showed up asking to take over and the hosts were just like, okay. And I was really confused at this because you had Shotzi and Scarlett who did an incredible job as hosts last week during night one. They gave the hosting duties to Unholy Union pretty much for no reason. And then we'll talk about what they did, but Unholy Union basically didn't host the show. They did show up a couple times, but they didn't actually do anything. So I didn't understand why they did this. It was immensely frustrating for me. But other than that, which was just an overall piece I wanted to discuss, let's immediately go to the main event of the show. The NXT Championship was on the line. Ilya Dragunov defending against Carmelo Hayes. This was their third showdown. And surprisingly, there was no additional setup for this match. Melo wore a Justice for Trick shirt to the ring. Uh, Dragunov came out. He must have done something right before the entrance where he had smoke in his lungs. He blew it out of his mouth and nose looking like a dragon. That was pretty cool as an entrance to the ring. This was hot from the opening bell. Melo countered Constantine Special into a tornado face buster. Then he jumped over the ropes for a legit spike DDT on the ring apron that Ilya sold like absolute death. Hayes followed with a perfect frog splash. Dragunov hit the H-bomb out of nowhere, but got caught again trying Constantine Special. So he hit a Death Valley driver on the apron. Ilya tore apart the announce table and climbed on the barricade for a super H-bomb, which collapsed the table. Mello, back in the ring, countered coast to coast with a code breaker, but Dragunov caught it. Mello then lawn darted him into the turnbuckles for a code breaker, but Dragunov bounced off the ropes while selling it and hit a falling H-bomb for a false finish. Mello then countered a super H-bomb with a code breaker, but as he climbed for nothing but net, Trick Williams returned, staring him down from the ramp. Ilya caught Mello on the top rope, distracted, hit a superplex following with Torpedo Moscow for the one, two, three to retain the title. I think it was like 21 minutes or so. So Mello, Ilya, three for three. (laughs) You know, check, check, check. Knocked them all out of the park. This was an exceptional match. It had a completely different energy than the first two because look, it was at the WWE Performance Center in front of 400 people instead of an arena in front of like 4,000 people. But these two simply cannot miss. I'm at 4.5 stars and an A. It was a tremendous main event that played into their prior matches with the counters, yet gave us the expected finish with Trick returning and costing Mello, thinking he was the one who attacked him. If you're a quarter star lower, 4.25, totally get it. There was a distraction finish and it was a different type of atmosphere, but the wrestling was really high level here. Williams stood over Hayes after the bell, then pulled him to his feet. He started staring him down when Baron Corbin was shown attacking Dragunov in the backstage area with us not getting any resolution on the trick mellow situation before the show ended. And because of that, it was an interesting conclusion to NXT because look, it doesn't make much sense for trick to cost mellow the title if he's not 100% sure that Hayes is the attacker. And if he is sure that he's the attacker, then shouldn't he have beat his ass in that moment? And if he's not sure, then that's a shitty thing to do to a friend who you really should not be doubting if you guys are legitimately that close in kayfabe. But as a cliffhanger, 
it completely worked because now we all want to tune in next week to see what happens. In reality, this is beef that they should be squashing immediately before waiting seven days to talk it out. But obviously, reality has to be stretched for professional wrestling. As with most things in NXT, Shawn Michaels has earned the trust and belief that the creative plan is going to make sense in the end. And he has been batting about 900, I would say, coming in with pretty clear deliveries on questionable creative moves, but obviously there are rare exceptions to that. Hayes should be furious with Williams if he's innocent, and Trick not trusting him and costing him a title like this should lead to them splitting up if you think about it, because how could Melo ever trust him again if Trick already showed he's willing to hair trigger turn on him when Melo didn't do it? That's again, assuming he did not do it. Now we're going to have to see what happens next week. But again, three for three between Ilya and Melo. This was the third best of the three matches. I actually believe that their second match at No Mercy was better than the match at, I think it was Great American Bash. This comes in third. I believe I gave both of those 4.75 stars A+. plus. So again, this one 4.5, but if you're at 4.25, it's pretty much the same thing, and I would totally agree with that as well. Uh, Creed Brothers fought Angel Garza and Humberto Carrillo in a tables, ladders, and scares match. The Creeds entered through the crowd, which all held paper signs for them. The Garzas wore Dia de los Muertos costumes, and Ivy Nile was also the Terminator in a bodysuit. Julius started with a Death Valley driver of Garza into Creo through a table at ringside. Then the Creeds laid a ladder atop the Garzas and slammed it with another. The Garzas put a ladder atop two open chairs in the ring and then tossed Julius off the top rope into it for such a gnarly spot that it completely tore up his back. It was really nasty. Then uh, Garza put Brutus in wing clipper on the ring apron. As Creo took them off the apron, with a flip over inverted blockbuster through a table at ringside. Brutus ate a perfect kick to the head through a chair and a missile dropkick while seated in a chair. Julius then got powerbombed into a ladder that split, proved to be wood. That was a broken fall. His back, man, got just torn up. Julius saved his brother with an Escalera cannonball outside. The Creeds set up two tables in the ring and one still ringside. Garza got bumped off the ropes through the one ringside with Carrillo, eating the super Brutus ball through the other two tables as the Creeds won an absolutely unreal match. What is there even to say? Like, if you told me this would be better than the Alpha Academy match on Raw, I would have called you a liar. But then I would quickly remember how great Garza and Carrillo can be when given opportunities. I was slightly disappointed that they lost because I am still of the belief they need to be NXT Tag Team Champions as soon as possible. It would help elevate them, get them spotlight, and prove again that they're an incredible tag team and really should be on the main roster. They're down there to hone their skills and their gimmick and all that. But I want them as champions. They're better than anyone else in the division, maybe other than the Creeds, but obviously they are way more experienced than the Creeds. If this was the Creeds' farewell match for NXT, it was an incredible way to go out on top. 4.25 stars and an A for everything from the wrestling to the effort to the execution. And me giving this 4.25 is largely why I gave the other one 4.5. But again, they both could be in that same range. This was awesome. It was as hot a match to open a show as you could possibly want. And all four of these guys just completely delivered. 
Uh, the North American Championship was on the line, Dominic Mysterio against Nathan Frazier. Dom came out in a prisoner costume in handcuffs with Rhea Ripley, leading him out as a police officer. Frazier got a ton of offense as the aggressor. They botched Frazier's springboard inverted DDT. Dom was seemingly out of position. Dom avoided the Phoenix Splash and hung Frazier up in the ropes. Frazier caught him on the top rope for a superplex into a twisting neckbreaker. Dom missed Rhea's attempt to slide him her title. Frazier countered a 619 with a superkick, but Dom pushed him off the top rope into the announce table and then hit a frog splash halfway across the ring to retain the title. There was a really odd camera cut, but best I could tell, Dom won this clean, which is the second time in three or four defenses that that's happened. And that's for the better. Heels need to start winning like 75% of their matches clean in WWE, especially against opponents like this. And hopefully that is a booking change that's going to happen across all the brands. This was a strong match, but look, Frazier, we've been very praiseworthy for him on this show. The guy needs to slow the fuck down like 10, 20% for everyone else on the roster. His speed sets him apart, but not everyone can be expected to keep up with that. And because he doesn't slow down, it leads to botches. Dom hurt in this match, his already injured shoulder unnecessarily just because Frazier was going too fast. So he's got to rein that in. As Dom was celebrating after the bell, Wesley returned out of nowhere, attacking him and parading with the championship. You know, so much for him being the one who attacked Trick Williams, right? I'm also surprised that he's back as a pure baby face after the entire story they put together when he left was him being disgruntled and angry and not believing in himself and turning heel. That is all going to need to be explained, which as long as they do it next week, that's fine. But in the moment, it did come across a little bit odd. Uh, the Women's Tag Team Championship was on the line. Chelsea Green and Piper Niven defending against Thea Hale and JC Jane. JC told Andre Chase backstage that he should scratch her back after she scratched theirs last week. Chase said he turned her down because she was trying to help him cheat and he owes her nothing. Uh, then Duke Hudson and Thea Hale came in excited with Chase wanting them to win fair and square. D'Angelo family next popped in, saying they were ready to get even. Chase oddly said yes, sir, to them, which Hudson noticed. And after everyone left, Unholy Union showed up as Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn, laughing that the faces didn't know that the women's tag team titles were cursed. What was great about this segment is how they basically interwove four teams together in one storyline, while also pointing to the Chase-Jane contentious relationship and perhaps some unknown deal Chase made with D'Angelo family behind the scenes. It seems like they might do a gimmick where like Chase is indebted to them. Maybe D'Angelo got him like the permits for the Chase U campus or something like that. That is definitely what this would be if it was like a B-level mafia movie. You know what I mean? Uh, onto the match. The challengers had face makeup with Piper dressed as Venom. Uh, Niven caught Hale with Jane flipping off the apron to take her down. The champions combined for a green code breaker followed by Niven landing on Chelsea and Thea with the scent on. Then Piper caught Thea for a shoulder breaker. JC countered Unpretty Her into a real cool fisherman style cradle spine buster. Niven then caught Hale on her shoulders for a perfect electric chair. Great spot. JC tried to use one of the men's titles, but Chase stole it from her with Green hitting Unpretty Her on JC for the title retention. This was easily the best that Chelsea and Piper have looked and wrestled as champions. Probably Chelsea's best match period in her entire WWE career. Not just this run, but the prior run in NXT. And it just goes to show what is possible when these women are actually given time and opportunity. It's a travesty that it took them going to NXT to have their second title defense and a damn good one at that.
But at the same time, it's a credit to NXT that they could come down and prove themselves like this. There is no reason that women cannot have tag team matches of this caliber on the main roster, period. Piper was especially strong here. She is such a great Haas wrestler for this division. The match was fun. The finish was perfect playing into the Chase U internal conflict. And after the bell, Unholy Union appeared in the crow's nest and magically got the spin the wheel, make the deal thing to spin, but it never landed on anything. So I'm not really sure the point of that other than freaking out the champions, which obviously worked. Really, the only negative is that Chelsea did all those costumes earlier this week and she didn't dress up at all here. I thought that was just kind of weird. Uh, Lyra Valkyria got an extended vignette covering her journey from Europe to getting injured at NXT UK to winning the NXT Women's Championship from Becky Lynch. We saw footage of Becky congratulating Lyra twice backstage, with Lyra also appearing on a prominent Irish morning show. Really well done. Would have liked to have seen her backstage on the show, given she just won the title, but this did work. Uh, Mr. Stone fought Braun Breaker. Stone came out in a wife beater without an entrance. Breaker obviously toyed with him, but Stone did get a counter roll up two count before getting cut in half with the spear for the one, two, three in two minutes. Braun dragged them out of the ring, put his head on the steel steps, just like Von Wagner, and was ready to slam them uh, when Wagner returned with an even bigger head bandage before Breaker could connect and choke slammed him on the bottom step. Wagner choke slammed Breaker. Braun rolled away from a stair shop and the guys got separated. Later backstage, Wagner screamed at Stone saying he wanted Breaker next week. Stone refused because Wagner wasn't done with rehab and was making good progress. Vaughn demanded it. He grabbed his head in pain and Stone eventually agreed. Man, after all of this, and look, I know some of you probably feel different than I do, but after all of this, you get Wagner's return. And for me, it was still a big, Womp womp. There's just nothing there with him. I cannot buy into it as hard as they try. The backstage segment absolutely did not help. It's just rough all around. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Von Wagner, it's just, it's not going to happen. I'm sorry. Uh, After that, Boa and Dante Chen, they were actually in the background of this segment. And once again, Boa was in the full black and white face paint. Uh, Fallon Henley fought Tiffany Stratton after being worked up in a backstage interview at Henley's impression of her last week. Uh, Stratton attacked Fallon during her entrance, rammed her knee into the ring post, and locked in a figure four around the post until the referees broke them up. So there was no match. That was definitely disappointing because it was advertised all week. Not the first time this has happened in NXT or WWE. Frustrating nonetheless. The attack was decent. Not great. Kalani Jordan fought Lola Vice in the NXT Women's Breakout Tournament final. Jordan caught Vice with almost like an inverted Russian leg sweep. Electra Lopez distracted her climbing the ropes. That gave Vice time to avoid a split-legged moonsault and catch Jordan with a roundhouse kick for the win. So the right winner, a mediocre match ending a below-mediocre tournament. For as good as women's wrestling has been in NXT, the breakout tournament disappointed significantly. Nearly every match was short. None of the women actually shined to a significant degree, at least not the way others have in the past. I just think the lineup was far too experienced overall. I don't like that. I didn't like it at all. Uh, Metaphor visited the haunted house, all dressed as Scooby-Doo characters, looking for the Heritage Cup stolen by Akira Tozawa. It was, of course, a comedy segment. They just kept running away from costumed actors. This continued in a second segment with Oro Mensa running into Tozawa first. Akira 
had random people drag Oro away. Lash Legend was later dragged away by a tall character with a pumpkin head. Jakara Jackson also got taken. Noam Dar found the cup while left alone, but once he picked it up and celebrated, all the ghouls were behind him. That allowed Tozawa to steal it back, saying all he wants is a match. Once Dar agreed, Tozawa handed the cup back, but he still called on the ghouls to attack him. I believe this is the third time they've gone to this haunted house, like for segments in NXT. And while I know the metaphor stuff is for a lot of people, and usually I even like it to a degree, this was just not for me at all. It felt like it could have been better, even doing the same corny kind of concept. Just the execution of it wasn't good. Alexis King did his first backstage interview sitting in his throne with colored bandanas all tied to it. He said, everyone has an opinion of him, but he's used to being a star. King said, it's his life and he's going to do things his way. He indicated that he's done something dastardly and he offered a green M&M to the interviewer because, you know, he's a rock star with a writer of green M&Ms. Solid across the board, not particularly notable. It's clear he's still getting a feel for everything. The painted on beard is immensely strange. Fix that, alter the look just a little bit, and maybe there will be something in the future. He is a true developmental guy and he's got to have time to develop. That's the key. Uh, Joe Gacy cut a seemingly psychotic hand cam promo saying he's made mistakes like anyone else, but still everyone judges him daily. He wondered if he's the problem, saying he's not asking for forgiveness and knows there's a darkness inside of him. Now Gacy said there's no strings on him. He also had a septum piercing and was wearing plaid, so the look was different. Out of the three primary gimmicks that Gacy has had in NXT, this one being the third, it's probably the most relatable to actual audience watching, and it was definitely the best presented of the three, but it was also the first go at it, so we're going to have to see what happens. I did kind of hope he would go in a completely different direction, not necessarily a baby face, but not a different version of pretty much the same character, which is what this feels like. Like when you had Mick Foley do the faces of Foley, and I know those all happened mostly at the same time, and certainly they had individual moments as well. Each of those characters was distinctive in a way. And usually when people change gimmicks, babyface heel or whatever the case might be, they are all versions of the same thing. But Gacy as a character seems more in the Mick Foley Bray Wyatt mold than he does like Drew McIntyre or Sami Zayn. So you need to give him something where there's gonna be a differential that fans can separate and start buying into. Maybe that will come here. But initially, it was just like another version of pretty much the same guy. And we'll see long-term if it ultimately works. It's clear that Gacy has talent. He can wrestle, he can speak. But the truth is, with NXT and with developmental, not everyone ultimately makes it. And I would say Gacy might be one of the larger disappointments to date. Not that creative has helped him <laughs> with Schism and Dyad and all the shit they did there. The other person obviously being Von Wagner, most notably, which is, again, it's, it's just one character. There's really not even changes to the character. It's it's whether he's a healer or a babyface and whether Mr. Stone is with him or not. They're trying to make him sympathetic. It It's just not working. Uh, Out the Mud got a promo package with Scripps wearing a do-rag with a grown-out beard, saying his prior gimmicks were him playing roles for the fans before Lucian Price and Bronco Nima reminded him about his true self. He said he's been locked up shot and he watched his uncle die at age 11. He said brawling brutes don't know about the culture and wouldn't last a week on their block. Yeah, I don't really think brawling brutes know about the culture. I think that's fair to say. Uh, he closed saying OTM is somebody. 
Uh, Reggie was also wearing an OTM shirt fashioned after the NWA straight out of Compton shirt, the famous shirt, which I would buy that if I could ever wear it, which I could not. So therefore I won't buy it, but it's pretty cool. I could see people being bothered by this gimmick and their portrayal, but it's legit. Like by all accounts and best I can tell, like Reggie, uh, you know, Scripps, whatever you want to call him, he, I believe was in a gang or related to a gang back in St. Louis. I think it might've been the Crips which is kind of interesting because these guys are wearing red, but that's another story altogether. And I do know that he had tough times growing up and all that. So, I mean, I think it's legit. And Nima and Price, I don't think they're playing up their characters either. So again, I understand people could have a problem with it. I don't, but I'm also not the person who can tell you whether you can have a problem with it or not, if that makes sense. That's up to you really to determine. Uh, But again, I think the... Uh, presentation of the entire thing is working. And it's easily the best thing that Reggie or Scripps, whatever you want to call them, has done from a promo perspective. If Price and Nima steadily improve in the ring, they might actually have something with this. So that really wraps up NXT this week. A lot happened. It was Halloween Havoc night two. It was interesting in that there were solid matches on this show. And I think probably two of the three best Halloween Havoc matches from this two-week period were here. The other one, of course, being Becky Lynch and Lyra Valkyria. But at the same time, night one of Halloween Havoc hit better for me. I don't know why that's the case, but just if you asked me which one was better, I would say night one. Maybe it's because of the title change and how great that match was. Maybe it's because there were a lot of women on the show and it was more storytelling on that show. And on this show, there was just more wrestling. That perhaps is the reason. But if you look at it from a a two-week total, then I think Halloween Havoc absolutely delivered. They knocked it out of the park. Two real entertaining weeks of NXT television. With that said, let's go ahead and move to AEW where we will be wrapping up Rampage, Collision, and Dynamite all together. We're going to look at it based on storylines, not one show and then the next, meaning we're not going to go Rampage, Collision, Dynamite. We're just going to talk about big-time storylines and discuss things that happened on all three shows as it relates to them. So let's kick it off with Collision. Uh, Jay White fought AR Fox. There was some real good action here with Fox just throwing himself onto the guys on both sides of the ring with Topes. His hops are just ridiculous. Uh, White kicked out of a senton bomb and a seated springboard Spanish fly. White then legit dumped him on his head with a half and half suplex before Fox took Blade Runner. Fun stuff, but it was patently ridiculous that Fox took the number one contender for the AEW title to the limit like this. Like maybe even more ridiculous was MJF, the company's primary champion, jumping out of the crowd trying to steal his title back only to scurry away when he lost the numbers advantage. It didn't make him look good. But the main event of Collision is really what we want to talk about. AEW Championship MJF against Kenny Omega. Now we will talk about some of the behind the scenes stuff in a moment, but let's first talk about what preceded the match and the match itself. So there was an extremely strong promo package for this on Rampage. It spotlighted MJF's rise and Omega's greatness. It ended with White barging into Omega's interview, teasing him about their past and saying he would be waiting for Kenny at full gear. Don Callis did the same to MJF, offering him a spot in the family with MJF sarcastically replying, I'm already the champion. You guys couldn't really help me in any way. It repeated on collision. Start to finish, it was probably one of the best packages that AEW has put together in a long time. Now, before this match, Samoa Joe retained his ROH TV title over Rhett Titus in two minutes with the Coquina Clutch. AEW said Titus was a former ROH TV champion, which I guess gave him 
a more fair than normal reason for getting this match, but it was an entire waste of time. Joe confronted MJF before the match, wondering if he considered his offer. MJF was focused, so Joe stepped back, saying he wasn't giving him an ultimatum, but if he said Joe's name and needed his help tonight, he would be there. There was simply no need for Joe to be in this match, given this segment. It already had him on the show. You didn't need Joe twice. It was inflating a title defense number for no reason whatsoever. Okay, let's finally talk about MJF and Omega. Omega came out with a Bret Hart jacket and glasses. Not sure if that was Halloween or just the typical AEW filleting of Bret. This appropriately got the final half hour of the show. MJF did a corkscrew tope early, which was funny given his gimmick and the fact that he missed three quarters of it. He also hit the kangaroo kick. Jim Ross called it the AWA World Championship about 10 minutes into the match. I don't know if anyone else caught that because I wasn't watching live. I just watched it you know, earlier this week and I didn't see anything on Twitter. But yeah, he called it the AWA World Championship. Omega hit a Snapdragon suplex on the ring apron and the Liger Bomb threw a table at ringside. MJF countered one winged angel into a poison Rana that Omega no-sold so he could deliver one back. MJF did a really awesome pump handle blue thunderbomb. Later, he tried to hump Omega's face on the turnbuckles, so Kenny dropped him face first into the top, then hit four V-triggers and a Snapdragon. Callus came down with a screwdriver to distract during One Winged Angel, with Omega just dropping MJF rather than completing the move and winning the title, but he did hit another V-trigger coming back. The referee ejected Callus. MJF hit Heat Seeker for a false finish. MJF countered Panama Sunrise into a 3.1 false finish, so they messed that up. Uh, Then MJF hit Panama Sunrise for Adam Cole, adding a second heat seeker for the clean one, two, three in 30 minutes. They shook hands and hugged afterward. This was excellent. Really tough to ask for more from this match, especially as a TV main event. Really good job by AEW and TNT, ensuring that commercials were kept to a minimum. This should be the template for how you do commercials in a match of this quality. And I'm talking Turner, but also USA Network and Fox. This is how you do the commercial breaks. Extremely strong going both ways, obviously. Omega had MJF beat until the distraction, but he really allowed himself to be distracted. MJF capitalized and won clean without cheating, but obviously it seemed like he was beaten moments prior, and now he becomes the longest reigning champion in AEW history for the world title, which he should be, both in kayfabe and in reality. I was at 4.5 stars and an A for this, I know that's the same grade as Ilya and Mello from NXT. And this was definitely a better wrestling match, just purely from a work rate standpoint. However, that match in NXT had a lot of story. This one did not. And MJF Omega was also about 10 minutes longer than it needed to be. Significant portions of the first third, but kind of the first two thirds of the match just felt like filler. If grades were not by quarters, this would be like 4.6 and Ilya Mello would be 4.4, but we do them by quarters here. They're both 4.5 stars and an A. Now, we do need to cover the circumstances surrounding this match, as that has been a subject of a lot of discourse since last week. If you remember, it was announced suddenly last Wednesday on Dynamite, basically giving three days notice that a pay-per-view main event caliber match, one of the biggest matches AEW could possibly make with its current roster, would main event a collision in front of about 3,500 people in Uncasville, Connecticut, and I don't even know if I'm saying the name of that city right, this on Halloween weekend against major sports competition. When criticizing this, I saw people suggest the match had no storyline. That's actually bullshit. 
It absolutely had a storyline. They built it for two weeks and it completely surrounded the idea of MJF breaking Omega's record as longest reigning champion. Now, should the MJF Omega title match, the first time they ever meet, be built around a storyline stronger than that? Absolutely. Should they have done a better job noting MJF's reign was approaching this magical number? Absolutely. They should have spent four or six weeks building this, not two. But to reiterate, there is a difference between a bad storyline or a lacking storyline and no storyline. Saying there was no storyline here is disingenuous. There absolutely was a storyline. What's clear is that this was a total ratings ploy. Tony Khan is smart enough to know that this is a money match, but he once again hot-shotted something for a rating. And not only that, he did it in a way where Omega took a pretty damn clean fall. Now, is that better than a bullshit disqualification finish? Again, absolutely. But still questionable given Omega's stature, plus all of his recent losses and the fact that, let's repeat, this match did not need to happen at all. If Khan had the foresight to realize the circumstances of this collision and booked far enough out in advance where he could have been teasing this for four or six weeks, then he could have put together a big title match for MJF without needing to waste Omega in a situation like this. So that leaves us now to discuss the rating because again, this was done for ratings. AEW Collision on Saturday got 472,000 viewers and a 0.13 demo, the exact same demo as the week prior, which is just a terrible number. And it was what NXT was doing in the 2.0 era, 1.1, 1.2, 1.3. It was also 45,000 viewers down from last week's collision rating. Now, the context here is that this could have been way worse. The main event, the final 30 minutes, apparently brought in something like 140,000 more viewers, or maybe it's 100,000, I forgot the number, but it like six figures more viewers than the first 90 minutes of the show. So people specifically tuned in for this match. Without it, who the hell knows what this rating would have been? Probably in the mid 300s, which is a rampage number. Point being, the ratings ploy technically worked to save the show from disaster, but there is no way it can feel good putting that match on TV and getting that rating, which again, was lower than the week prior. It's simply a terrible number. WCW did something like this once. They had Bill Goldberg and Hulk Hogan fight for the WCW title. They wanted to beat Raw in the ratings. But not only were there 10 times as many people in the arena for that, they did it in the Georgia Dome, 40,000 people compared to maybe 4,000 here. They won the ratings war with Raw that night. And it added like a million viewers to the show. So, So again, like 10 times the number. The other issue is the first 90 minutes of collision on Saturday was shit. The show now feels like a mix of dynamite and rampage, but with some different characters occasionally. The unique feel that collision used to have when we were praising it those first four or six weeks, it's basically gone. So Tony put forth this massive main event, maybe the biggest TV main event of the year on any wrestling show, but he didn't put together a banger 90 minutes to precede it. You couple that with the short two-week build that again was a storyline, just not a deeper, well-laid-out storyline, and the criticism of Tony and AEW here, it's deserved. Here's the truth about AEW right now. It used to be cool. Now it's cooler than cool. It's ice cold, shout out Andre 3000. There's issues with talent and how they're being featured. There's issues with prioritizing matchmaking over storytelling. 
There's issues with predictability. There's obvious issues with the women's division. There's issues with the tag team and trios divisions. There's issues with running the same markets too frequently. There's issues with overdoing so-called dream matches and important announcements. We will talk about that later. There's issues with too many titles and far too many title matches with no importance or relevance where challengers just get shots for no reason whatsoever. There's issues with featuring the other organization's titles and talent far too frequently. We're talking about New Japan, AAA, CMLL, whoever else. There's issues with featuring unsigned jobber level talent rather than putting on real matches with their loaded roster. Let me repeat, one of AEW's biggest possible matches, one that legitimately could have main evented all in next year at Wembley Stadium, was seen live by less than 4,000 people and seen live on TV by less than 500,000 people. It's inexcusable. If it had been built properly and thought out for four or six weeks with a full storyline, multiple segments, they would have done way better. When MJF first said 13 days two weeks ago, I didn't even know what he meant by that until I saw a tweet. Oh, it's 13 days, the title reign, got it. At least the positive intent and effort would have been there if they did a real build. And that's why this was not a critique of the results so much as it is the process. It's also why AEW Collision right now, it's starting to feel like WCW Thunder. On Rampage, the acclaimed were excited that next week's collision will be the 69th day of their title reign. Max Caster wanted to invite MJF, but Anthony Bowens laid down the law. On Collision, Caster got catfished by someone pretending to be MJF. I told you guys the countdown, by the way, was for the 69 days. The initial scissoring bit with acclaimed, it was funny a year ago. Now that the gimmick has dragged on, and now that it's moving into this, it's just getting super old. It's getting cornier than ever. Creative has actively made me sick of the acclaimed, which never should have happened given how hot they were. On Dynamite, MJF was scheduled to fight Bullet Club Gold, but he needed to find three partners. So MJF opened the show looking for partner advice from Adam Cole, who was live on video chat. Cole called him the greatest AEW champion because he now holds the record. He also told him to consider Joe's offer of protection. Then Roderick Strong and the Kingdom came up, telling Cole to stop pretending MJF is not the devil. So Cole hung up, and then we saw the devil mask flash on the screen for five seconds. MJF knocked on Omega's door, but Chris Jericho answered, smiled, and closed the door on him. Wardlow then caught Max and started choking him against a wall, saying he would take everything from him when he least expects it. When he stormed off, a claim appeared, and he ignored Max Caster again. And I had a thought here, by the way. The devil mask like keeps flashing on screen. Wouldn't it make sense if this person attacked other potential challengers? Like you have Joe and Wardlow and all these people going after MJF's title, but the guy only attacked Jay White. So shouldn't the devil also attack both of those guys as well? Get them even more pissed off at Max? Just a, just a thought. Uh, MJF nearly knocked on Samoa Joe's locker room, but declined. Then he pulled Darby Allen, signed down, crossed out his name and wrote emo bitch on it. He again ignored the acclaimed. They approached him a third time, reminding MJF no one likes him except Caster, who said they could still team together under two conditions. Number one, they scissor after the match. Number two, he wears whatever was in a black garbage bag. I assumed it was pink gear. Waiting and ready to help was Jeff Jarrett's crew. That led Max to look at the bag and shrug, basically realizing he had no other option. Strong and Kingdom were back calling Cole on the speakerphone. They were offended MJF didn't ask them to team with him and called MJF a jerk. Cole told them to shut up. And what I thought was interesting here is Strong and Kingdom, like, 
a week ago, maybe two weeks ago, they said, okay, we know what we have to do. We have to befriend MJF. That's the only way that this is ever going to work. But they haven't done anything to make that happen. If they had, and they did a two or three week storyline with that, then they could have teamed with MJF here. And given the results of the match, you could actually make an argument that it would have made more sense for Strong Kingdom to be his teammates rather than the team that eventually was. But beyond that, let me just move on. We've known this for weeks now. MJF is fully the single protagonist in AEW right now. Multiple potential challengers, show long storylines, most over babyface in the company. And on what was an extremely rough dynamite, at least for me, the MJF segments were easily the best part of the show, both in terms of being an engaging storyline and also the comedy aspects were pretty funny. It was obviously always going to be the acclaimed being his partners. And while Anthony Bowens and the yelling was really annoying and remains really annoying, the whole damn it, Max thing, it's like you have strong screaming Adam, you have this guy screaming, damn it, Max, it's enough. Like I literally lower my volume for Dynamite because I know that this shit's going to happen. But it was ultimately a good booking for the main event to have MJF with acclaimed. I just think it would have been much more interesting if it was strong in Kingdom. So Caster had his best rap in months. Switchblade bitch made look probably into piss play. Great line. Uh, MJF came out in pink gear with a pink Burberry scarf as expected. MJF got a John Cena hot tag beating up everyone but white one on three. Then he hit the kangaroo kick on Gunn and Juice Robinson, celebrated in the ropes. White immediately jumped up behind him, caught him with Blade Runner for the clean one, two, three to not be forced to give the triple B back to MJF. Bullet Club Gold was ready to destroy him after the bell. Acclaim made the save. White then set up uh, to hit MJF with the title, but Caster jumped in the ring and took the bullet for him. Caster was like dead on the canvas, holding up scissors, which was pretty funny, uh, but MJF smacked his hand away. So Billy Gunn grabbed MJF, screamed in his face that Caster has done so much for him and it was the least he could do. All four of them scissored and it was a nice pop at the end of the show. Caster then hugged him around the waist to end Dynamite. So they ran a weeks long storyline about this eight man match and the stolen title only to have the heels win and MJF to continue looking like a dork baby face by being unable to regain the championship that is rightfully his. And the payoff was scissoring. Like the real payoff probably should be MJF being able to trust people beyond Cole and that eventually costing him because he trusted people here and they failed him. Now, MJF was the one who took the fall, but Acclaim didn't break it. No one helped him. That goes to show that choosing the Acclaimed in kayfabe was the wrong decision. And I don't have a problem with MJF taking the pin because it came due to his baby face tendencies. Like he's shaking the ropes. He should be engaged in the match. He needs to rediscover the piece of shit MJF who does what it takes to win in order to beat White. But this would have been a much greater moment had MJF regained the title first. We'll see if there's a reason why they didn't do that because we're gonna have to see the way the rest of the storyline plays out. But again, I think a longer term storyline with Kingdom and Strong being the ones who failed him and MJF being pissed off at them it continues the Cole storyline. It has MJF not able to trust anybody. He doesn't have the belt. That is the goal of the booking anyway. And we don't have MJF just looking like a dork scissoring guys who did not help him regain his title. So that was my take on that. On Dynamite, the international championship opened the show, Orange Cassidy against Claudio Castagnoli. There were clips on Rampage and Collision of a random 
single match press conference involving these two and Tony that was seemingly held after Dynamite last week. Why a guy in Orange Cassidy who never dresses up would be in a suit for a press conference that was randomly held because the match wasn't announced until last week does not make a shred of sense. It was interesting to see him in a suit, but other than that, the purpose of doing this was unclear. Claudio on Collision announced that Brian Danielson has a broken orbital bone, and he's not sure whether it was the orange punch or the rainmaker from Kazuchika Okada that caused it, but he would make both of them pay. Then Claudio destroyed a jobber in 45 seconds later in the show and put him in a submission after the bell. Total waste of time, obviously. You had the promo. You didn't need the match. We discussed last week whether the Danielson injury was real or kayfabe. Apparently, it's real, which is, I mean, it's incredible. Like, incredibly unfortunate, obviously, uh, for Danielson. It's nonstop with this guy. Interesting is that the injury actually occurred in the Andrade El Idolo match, yet they're ignoring that because the match was booked for no reason whatsoever without any storyline relevance, as I mentioned previously. So going back to last week's conversation, it seems like the prior finish and the way the show ended on Dynamite last week was entirely kayfabe and a cover for the injury, which to go back and answer the question that was posed to me on last week's show, yeah, that was an extremely lackluster end, given they could have done it in a far more exciting manner. So as I said, Orange and Claudio opened Dynamite One other note, I'm trying not to be like overly critical about this extra stuff, but I'm kind of sick of Orange opening the vast majority of Dynamites. I'm not sick of him. I'm fine with him wrestling. You know, the endless title matches are a little bit ridiculous, but put him in a spot other than the opening match of the main event, just for once. That would be nice. Uh, Wheeler Yuta and Hook both got ejected from ringside and got heated backstage, so they're going to have a match at some point. Orange probably at a full gear kickoff show or something like that. Orange hit Stun Dog Millionaire before Claudio had a great counter of a Tornado DDT directly into a swing. Then he did a counter into a crossface and a butterfly crossface, plus a sleeper swing. Cassidy eventually caught him with Orange Punch and Beach Break, but Claudio rolled out of the ring. Eventually, Claudio caught an Orange Punch attempt, but Orange got his legs on Claudio's shoulders and rolled him down Huracarana style into a pinning combination to retain the title. Excellent match, 3.75 stars B+. John Moxley walked out immediately after the bell, so Orange decided to run back into the ring from the ramp and attack him. Mox immediately got leverage and bashed the hell out of Orange, beating his ass as Claudio just stood there watching. He even bit Cassidy until Claudio pulled him off. Mox backstage said Ray Phoenix knocked himself out just to put Mox down for three seconds, only for Orange to come back and take the title back. He promised to beat Cassidy within an inch of his life at full gear, and he would take the title there as well. I swear, the babyface heel dynamics of Blackpool Combat Club are basically Big Show as an entire faction. It's one thing one week, something completely different the next. You could just categorize them as tweeners, except the shifts are not different shades of gray. They're immensely drastic, black and white. Going back to Orange Mox, obviously that makes sense. And it stands to reason they're probably gonna put the title back on Mox and do whatever they were planning to do from a booking perspective. But what I wonder is, if that was the plan, Why take it off Phoenix at all? Why not just let Mox beat Phoenix and go from there? Maybe there's going to be a swerve here. If not, it'll be Orange losing to Mox twice and losing the title twice. And it feels unnecessary for that to have happened when Mox Phoenix just could have been the match. On Dynamite, Adam Copeland did his big entrance and put over Tony Schiavone for doing a lot of work for AEW. He said he has a relationship and respect level with Sting due to their injury history. He also put over Darby as a foundational piece Perhaps one would call that a pillar, maybe. Uh, Christian Cage and his crew interrupted. Christian said he'd retire Sting early and told Copeland to back down 
or he'd snap his neck and leave him in a wheelchair. So the kids attacked with Nick hitting Wayne's world to lay him out. Christian prepped for concerto. So Sting casually strolled down. Darby came out too. Both eventually got taken down. Copeland rose to spear cage, telling the faces they were right and he'll be their partner. Solid segment overall, extremely predictable, but sometimes predictable things are good. I maintain that Copeland being blind to Christian being a piece of shit and it literally taking him being attacked to threaten to fight him is extremely silly. And maybe worse is these teams are immensely uneven. Like you have Copeland and Christian, they cancel each other out. Then you have Darby against an 18-year-old and a 65-year-old against a 65-million-year-old. But no, seriously, you have Darby and Sting against Nick Wayne and Luchasaurus of all people as like the other two-thirds of this match. It's really just a star power deal. And that's fine as long as the rest of the full gear card ends up strong, which it does seem like it is going to. On Dynamite, Tony Khan had his latest important announcement. It started with him flating himself and AEW for all in at Wembley Stadium. Then he made an awful Christmas joke about his parents putting out their tree in July. Like what? And he said his gift to wrestling fans is that tickets to all in will be on sale December 1st and that fans can sign up for a pre-sale. The important announcement for fans worldwide was that all in would have a pre-sale. I shit you not. That was the fucking announcement. The absurdity of this promotion. I mean, we and you have been making fun of Tony's major announcements and important announcements for like two years now. But this is where that phrase officially and finally jumped the shark. At least in the past, the announcements had some level of interest or relevance. We're going to California for the first time. We're gonna do a show in Canada. We're bringing in the Owen Hart tournament. Like, Okay, maybe they were overpromoted and exaggerated, but at least they were notable. This is not notable at all. This one was straight up pathetic. It was something that should have been a lower third graphic on TV. Come on, treat your fans with a level of respect. And what happened to Tony Khan saying he didn't want to be on TV and didn't want to be part of the show? A total hypocrite in that regard, among other regards, which we're going to get to another one momentarily. Super frustrating as a viewer. The other part of this that I do not understand, Tony is terrible on TV. He fidgets. He either stares blankly or blinks too much. He mumbles his words. He has a company filled with people who can speak on the mic. He has Tony Schiavone, who has made announcements for him before. He has Nigel McGuinness, who is British and stood next to him during this. Why not just use one of them? Why does he have to be front and center? And why did he have to be front and center to announce a pre-sale for a show that's not going to happen until next summer? It's unbelievable. And if you think that's unbelievable, as I was taping this show, literally minutes before I got to this part on Tony Khan, AEW announced via press release that I received in my inbox that they have signed Ric Flair to a multi-year deal. No details of his role were provided other than the fact that his energy drink is going to be the official energy drink of AEW, which I'm sure is going to skyrocket sales. Tony Khan said, quote, his world-renowned persona and his amazing wrestling mind will be major assets to AEW's programming and our position globally. Let me just kind of say it like this, and I'm being as candid as I can. Ric Flair 
has been in extremely poor health for a long period of time. He's 74 years old. Is he still a name? Yes. Are people going to tune into AEW Dynamite or Collision or Rampage because let's say Flair happens to be on that show? No, they are not. Tony Khan is signing Ric Flair, who has all of these sexual misconduct allegations against him, less than a month after tweeting about Vince McMahon having all these sexual misconduct allegations against him. I mean, that is the definition of hypocrisy. It is. And he's signing Ric Flair, yet he banned Hulk Hogan from ever appearing in AEW. The definition of hypocrisy. I mean, if you want to burn money in exchange for nothing, there's perhaps no better way to do it than signing Flair to your promotion in 2023. The only logical answer for this is that he's going to be a brand ambassador of some kind. And perhaps Turner told him they wanted him back on the network because they believe they can sell sponsorships against that. And maybe signing Ric Flair keeps Andrade El Idolo happy, who has seemingly been trying to get out of the promotion. And maybe having Flair under contract and having Andrade happy lures Charlotte Flair over there when her contract with WWE ends. Kind of like a college football team signing a recruit's father to be an analyst just to get the kid to commit. But in reality, I mean, Tony Khan, we've talked about this. He's been a mark for WCW and he's been a mark for Flair, just like he was a mark for CM Punk. And I'm not using mark, by the way, in those words negatively. He's just, he likes those things. That's how he grew up as a wrestling fan. And he wants to have Flair as part of his wrestling buddies collection. I mean, that's really what this feels like. I see no value. I think it's hypocrisy to its highest level. And I just don't get it at all. Again, unless really the idea is to ensure that Andrade stays and to get Ashley Flair, which is what her name would be, to sign whenever her contract ultimately ends. But I don't even know that Charlotte would leave WWE to do that. I mean, she's on the biggest stage possible. They treat her like a, a female god, or I guess that would be a god. I don't, have to, I don't have to categorize it that way. So why would she leave? I mean, I guess maybe to be with her husband, sure, yeah, maybe. But like, it's a much, much smaller stage for someone of her stature already. Uh, more than anything else, they made an important announcement Wednesday on Dynamite, and they made it about a pre-sale code. And then they announced they're signing Ric Flair Thursday. Why would signing Ric Flair not be the important announcement that you make on Dynamite? What sense in the world does that make? <laughs> I, just, I don't get it. It wouldn't have been a good announcement, mind you, but it would have been a better one. And by the way, what happened to this AEW from like four years ago that was going to be different? They were going to do everything different. They weren't going weren't to get involved with this stuff. They weren't going to lean on legends. They were going to stake their you know, flag in the ground and bring high quality elite level wrestling. And it was going to be sports adjacent and all that stuff. And they were going to do right by the fans and they were going to do right by their talent. What happened to that? We're signing Ric Flair in 2023. That's what's happened to it. On Dynamite, there was an ROH six-man championship match, the Hung Bucks against Mogul Embassy. Swerve Strickland entered late in the match, drawing Hangman Page away for the home invasion last week. Matt Jackson ate a toss powerbomb, a pump knee, and a tilting front slam with the heels winning the titles. 
So clearly this was a storyline move. It worked in that regard with Hangman and Swerve getting separated backstage. The Young Bucks threw a fit ringside given the circumstances after the bell. Matt acted like a child. He turned over the table, slammed a chair into the ring post a bunch of times, did zero damage to it, by the way. Uh, This was a 41-day title reign that played out entirely on AEW with nothing memorable happening. But again, the storyline implication of Swerve doing 3D chess, getting the Bucks to turn against Hangman because he cost them the titles just as they rekindled their relationship. That story does make perfect sense. Let's hope this allows these titles to be off AEW television permanently. That would be the best thing that could possibly happen. On Rampage, Kyle Fletcher fought Konosuke Takeshka in the latter stages of this match, which was pretty hard hitting. Takeshka no-sold a half-and-half suplex, then Fletcher no-sold a Poison Rana, immediately hitting a Brain Buster. Takeshka then hit a really sick avalanche cradle driver for a false finish, and then he hit a pendulum suplex. He added two pump knees for the win in 12 minutes. Outside of the lack of selling, this was a damn good match, 3.75 stars, B+. Uh, Fletcher attacked Takeshka and Powerhouse Hobbs with a chair after the bell, but Don Callis pulled Hobbs off Fletcher because he liked that Kyle finally showed hate, so he invited him into the family, and Fletcher walked out with them. Definitely a positive development, both for Fletcher and the family, which is now finally growing with real members. It actually seems like there's a direction for it after a few months of what I would say is relative aimlessness. On Dynamite, Jericho and Omega fought 2.0. Callus and the family were on commentary. Fletcher, funny enough, looked like the Jackal, Callus's old gimmick in WWE. Uh, shout out to Jake Hager for saving Omega on a tope that was well short. Jericho ate a bat shot from Daddy Magic for a false finish. Then he simply took out Angela Parker with Judas Effect for the win. Callus challenged them to a street fight in Ontario after the bell. Omega accepted the challenge, saying Kota Ibushi would join them. Callus said they would still be a man short, I guess referring to Sammy Guevara, who has not been on TV in weeks. Jericho reminded that he had a friend bigger than Powerhouse Hobbs. And as we suspected last week, 51-year-old Paul White came out. He barely moved. He one-punched Fletcher. For some reason, his singlet wasn't covering his nipples, which looked weird. He also had double braces on his knees and his hips were all bowed out. Commentary tried to sell it as a huge deal. And to be fair, the crowd did pop for him at first. But holy shit, he certainly did not look like an intimidating figure the way he did even five years ago. Let's not forget, it was nine years ago where we had Big Show against Kane and WWE fans were begging them to retire. They were chanting that during the match. And here we are nine years later and he's wrestling for AEW. I sure would have preferred a six-man match without White. This is gonna be one hell of a crazy clunky street fight with Abushi and White on the same team. That's so random. There absolutely needs to be a spot where Hobbs just destroys White with something immensely impressive. But it is also a TV match and not a pay-per-view, so that's a positive, and it makes this far better than it otherwise would be. The question is, what pay-per-view match does this lead to? We'll find out, perhaps, on Wednesday. Omega and Jericho were being interviewed about this in the Omega locker room that we saw earlier that actually seemed to be an elite locker room, though for some reason only Omega's name was on the door in the early part of the show. The Bucks were bothered that The elite got back together, but Omega's out making new friends with Jericho especially, and they aren't getting each other's backs. Jericho didn't stand for it. Omega explained they're aligned against Callus, and Matt snapped that Chris was cut from the same cloth as Don. Out of the four segments we just discussed, they all connected kind of to this story. This was the best of the bunch. It does feel repetitive to do another elite split, elite reform angle, because that's clearly what this is going to come down to. But if memory serves, we never actually got that thunderous elite 
reunion, as Andy Bernard would call it, delicious moment to cap that storyline. So maybe this is their way of getting back into that and delivering that moment. It was kind of funny if you think about it that Hangman ran off because his baby was nearly abducted. And here the Bucks are mad because Jericho was in their locker room. You know, if you compare those, it's kind of kind of strange. Uh, on Rampage, Chris Statlander, Willow Nightingale, and Sky Blue gathered backstage with Stat telling the others they've been weird since getting misted by Julia Hart. Sky said she's fine. Willow said the weird I thing isn't who they are. At least Sky got to speak for the first time. Uh, but this accomplished nothing. Anna J backstage said JAS has had a rough few weeks, but she needs the guys there for her. Callus came up shaking Jake's hand, and the other JAS guys considered making a deal with him. Daniel Garcia, though, protested. Ruby Soho also approached Angelo Parker again with what seemed like some sexual tension there. The latter part of that was interesting. This led to a fatal four-way number one contendership match for the women's title involving all three women, plus Abaddon. You know, because it's Halloween. So it's time to bring Abaddon back out. So Willow, Sky, Anna, and Abaddon. Tony Storm entered seconds in to watch them. Abaddon won with actually a cool looking finisher I can't even begin to describe to you. But having her return and beat Anna, along with these other two women who are on TV constantly, just because it's Halloween, it is patently ridiculous booking. This is for crap! On Collision, the women's championship was on the line, Karushita against Abaddon. This was a Fright Night fight. There were Halloween decorations around the ring apron like a styrofoam headstone and pumpkins. Sheeta wore an entire red dress. Abaddon started gurgling up black goo late in the match with Sheeta unable to keep her down because, you know, she's like a zombie. Abaddon poured out wrapped candy and hit an avalanche blockbuster into it. Sheeta came back with a kendo stick shot to the head and then Tomoshi for a false finish. Then she put a pumpkin on Abaddon's head and hit the katana to win. Storm ran out after to steal the spotlight, laying on commentary with her robe kind of pulled up and Tony... Her, her ass was right in his face. I don't know what he did there, but he did try to look away. Credit to him. And also credit where it's due because this match popped. Like the, the finish popped the crowd. And a character like Abaddon, no selling, actually makes much more sense than a regular wrestler doing it because she's supposed to be like this weird zombie thing. But it sure did take a lot for Sheeta to beat someone who hasn't been on TV for AEW in literally two full years. And it's fair to question whether someone who hasn't been on TV for literally two full years should have gotten a title match at all. The answer is no. Then later on Collision, we got the exact same Stat Willow Sky segment with Stat basically asking, why didn't either of you win? Willow said she feels Sky growing distant from her. She said she's gonna deal with Julia Hart herself. Stat already beat both of them straight up, retaining the TBS title over them over like the last two weeks. So why exactly did she believe they should get or deserve the bigger title? The whole thing is nonsensical. And then get this, on Dynamite, there was an AEW Women's Championship match Sheeta defending against Willow. What exactly did Nightingale do to get this match? She lost a number one contendership on Rampage, which was four days earlier, or five days earlier, however long, and didn't have a match between Friday and Wednesday, yet she got a title match with Sheeta. This despite her losing a TBS title match 10 days prior. This is the women's division booking right now. It is straight up terrible. There is no other way to describe it. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. 
They slightly botched an avalanche Falcon Arrow. Willow pounced to Karu and hit a Death Valley driver. Sheeta eventually hit the Katana to retain the title. The match actually wasn't bad. It was, if I was grading it, like 3.25 stars, maybe something like that. But the ridiculousness of this booking just set me, as you can tell. They shook hands after the bell. It should be noted Willow's eye black was completely gone. I guess the idea is that she beat back the infection by standing up to Sky on Saturday. I'm trying to make sense of it, folks. Storm interrupted for the third time, so Sheeta attacked Lutha and chased Storm backstage. The lights went out and Julia appeared behind Willow, offering her hand. Sky then ran out and stared down Julia, who nodded, so Sky turned around and stared down Willow. Then she turned around a third time and somehow botched a blue mist attempt into Julia's face. We couldn't even see it, almost as if she just spit on her. That's kind of the way it came across. Then we got a look at Skye's eyes and her black makeup was actually more navy blue this time. Okay, first things first. You know how I know Sheeta is losing to Storm at full gear? They are blatantly padding her resume with championship defenses three in one week with only one actually earned and all of them ridiculous. All of this so the rain does not look like a waste, which of course it has been a waste because they never do anything meaningful with Sheeta when she's champion. In terms of the post-match, the heel turn would have been obvious so it was a nice swerve keeping Sky face. The execution wasn't great, but at least it wasn't an eye roll like it could have been. There was a funny moment during this match. Uh, a wipeout commercial appeared on screen, like an ad, a lower third ad. And Taz exclaimed, hey, I know that guy, referring to John Cena. And someone on commentary said under his breath, his name is John Cena. I just thought that was really funny. On Collision, Dax Harwood fought Ricky Starks. There was a nice dual promo segment uh, by these guys before the match. The lights went out with House of Black appearing in the crowd after. One week after having no makeup, Malachi's eye was shadowed in black again. Uh, Dax countered Ricky and hit a nice pile driver, only to get pulled off by Big Bill. Starks came back with a pile driver off the distraction for the one, two, three. Interesting they had Hardwood take the fall without either of Starks' finishers factoring into it. But that was really about it. The lights went out. Julia Hart appeared on stage and raised her arm. They went out again, House of Black entered the ring and stood in front of the champions to confront FTR. Then LFI made its return and stared down FTR before turning and attacking House of Black. Still don't have a reason for the house aligning with Starks and Bill, nor do we have a reason for LFI to have FTRs back unless they just like three-letter teams. And none of this plays into Black previously knocking out Danielson. So what the fuck? On collision, Ryan Nemeth caught a promo backstage before he sought out the managerial duties of Hot and Flexible. When the door opened, it was Miro who attacked him. So based on last time, I guess they're going to have a match despite Miro having him prone and ready to eliminate him. Hopefully they learned and will not do anything else with Nemeth. Again, they probably will. Later, Andrade was asked about Hot and Flexible and LFI. He said he's a businessman. It's all his business, nobody else's. Great, glad you're on screen, Andrade, to say absolutely nothing. On Rampage, Mike Santana fought Ortiz in a grudge match. It was a no disqualification. Santana hit an awesome torture rack Liger bomb for the win, uh, except Rick Knox counted the one, two, three, while one of Ortiz's shoulders was literally elevated on Santana's leg. It was nowhere close to the canvas. Other than that, it was a normal mediocre match. Ortiz refused a fist bump after the bell, so Sanjay Dutt ran in seemingly to recruit Ortiz to the mishmash faction that they have. The only thing less interesting to me than this match would be adding Ortiz to the Jeff Jarrett faction. On Collision, there was a dual promo segment with Keith Lee and Shane Taylor showing measured respect for one another. Lee said he'd make an example out of Taylor, who said he'd prove Lee has his limits. It was fine. 
It's a meaningless feud with no heat whatsoever. On Collision, the guns fought the boys. This is a real match that happened on the number two AEW TV show. They obviously won with 310 to Yuma. The first four matches on Collision Saturday featured AR Fox, the boys, Abaddon, and that guy Titus. That's just ridiculous. What are you doing? Use this time for active wrestlers that people want to see. Let Miro wrestle. Cut two of the matches and give Miro a five-minute match. Like That's all we're talking about here. It's not a huge deal. On Rampage, Kip Sabian cut a really shit promo trying to get cheap heat about Philadelphia sports teams. Yeah, all your sports teams, they're all failures. Mark Briscoe then returned to a nice pop. He attacked and stood tall. It was a very indie wrestling segment. And lastly, on Collision, QTV did a backstage interview saying they had a new segment to debut. QT Marshall had his new title saying he's been around the world defending it, but would now defend it in AEW against the best luchadors in the world. So you're telling me the best luchadors in the world are not in Mexico? Good to know. Uh, QT actually looked good. He was all suited up here. It was kind of cool to see him. And it was nice to have a normal segment from QTV instead of the whole gimmick with the TMZ ripoff shit. So again, like I probably will dislike it next week, but I liked it this week. So that's a positive. And that really wraps up AEW this week. As I noted, there was a ton to talk about and there were a ton of just massively frustrating moments. I got to tell you, I watched all three of these shows and most weeks I'm able to say, you know, I really didn't like Collision, but Dynamite was fire or... Both shows this week perhaps weren't great, but these five or six moments absolutely delivered. I believe this truly. AEW this week felt like WWE a couple years ago. In that, they gave us five hours of programming and there were maybe 90 minutes worth watching. That is just truly how I feel. Three high quality matches, the MJF storyline. That's pretty much it. Everything else was thrown together, relatively nonsensical and frustrating the women's division. Nothing could have happened and we'd be in the exact same spot this week that we were last week. I did forget the whole deal with the Callis family. That was interesting as well. So the the three matches, the MJF storyline and the Callis family storyline, I, I bought into that. And that also includes obviously the hangman stuff with Swerve, even though Swerve's not Callis family, but I'm just saying that larger storyline, that was good. So again, if you took all of that you took the three matches and you took the MJF storyline, you have a really great, I would say, 90-minute show. But I didn't watch 90 minutes. I watched five hours this week, and it just felt so many times, Rampage, Collision, Dynamite, that I was watching, and I was just like, this is not entertaining to me. And I was very frustrated about that because it wasn't that long ago, if memory serves, where I thought AEW put on one of their best Dynamites of the entire year. And here we are a couple of weeks later, and I was just frustrated with all three shows. So maybe things pick up this week. It's a weird time right now for this company. Like I said, cooler than cool, ice cold, but they do have full gear coming up. And I will say the full gear card right now looks extremely solid. Already announced are MJF against Jay White for the world championship. MJF's gonna pull double duty against the guns for the ROH tag team championship. We don't know if he's gonna have a partner or defend it himself. I don't like the storyline of him having two matches on the show, but I digress, we'll save that for another time. Hikaru Shida versus Tony Storm, which is going to be an immensely strong women's match. Like, great. Uh, Sting, Darby Allen, and Adam Copeland against Christian Cage, Luchasaurus, and Nick Wayne. You know, will probably be solid across the board, but it, it's not the most exciting match for me. Orange Cassidy, John Moxley, too. We've seen it already. It was great the first time. It's probably going to be great again. Uh, Hangman, Adam Page against Swerve Strickland, too. We saw it the first time. It was great. Probably going to be great again. So let me just reiterate here. We have six matches set for full gear. And there's still a couple weeks out, which is actually 
AEW announcing matches earlier than usual, which is another positive, I will state. And four of the six, I very much want to see. So they're in a good direction right now with Full Gear coming up, but TV needs to catch up with the actual card itself. Again, strong matches, not necessarily all strong storylines to get there. There's really no storyline when it comes to the Tony Storm and Hikaru Shida thing. Storm stealing her spotlight is like pretty much nothing. Orange and Mox, it's pretty much just, he got the title back, so I want it again. The strong storylines right now going into the show, at least as far as I'm concerned, are MJF and Jay White and Hangman and Swerve, both of which could easily be five-star matches by the time we get to this uh, in a couple of weeks. So that, folks, wraps up this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast covering NXT and AEW. In terms of what's ahead here on the show, we will be back Saturday with your WWE Crown Jewel Instant Analysis. And then next week, Tuesday, the WWE Fallout episode. And then Thursday, your NXT and AEW episode. I appreciate everyone listening to this edition of the show on the way out. Some reminders. First, the Getting Over Wrestling podcast is all about Defy. So please leave those five-star reviews for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify on Apple. Take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. Also follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official Getting Overhead just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You will get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, approximately four times a week. News posts at least once a week. And you get to directly interact with the Silver King and Vintage. Thank you all for listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. It is officially time for the Silver King to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.